The first question is, I am new to this. Uh, when we are meditating together here on Zoom, are we practicing inquiry or silence or surrender? Is it a good idea when starting out to make time for this daily in a busy life? Otherwise, it gets pushed aside by so many distractions and duties. What do you recommend to the newcomer starting on this journey? Where to start? Um, that is, when, when we have this 10-minute silence, everyone is, of course, free to do what they, whatever they want to do. Um, <clears throat> there are so many different types of meditation, but what Bhagavan recommended above all else is this simple practice of meditating on our own, on ourself, on our own being, I am. Because <clears throat> the whole problem is ego. Ego is the false awareness of ourself as I am this body, I am this person. So since it's a false awareness of ourself, it can be destroyed only by correct awareness of ourself. So in order to be aware of ourself as we actually are, we need to investigate ourselves. And the only instrument by which we can investigate ourselves is our power of attention. So the, the practice Bhagavan taught is the simple practice of being self-attentive. By being self-attentive, we are thereby surrendering ourselves because the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping things other than itself. If instead of grasping other things as it's habitually doing, if it tries to grasp itself, it thereby subsides and dissolves back into its source. Of course, it doesn't just, at first when we try, because we are not holding on to ourselves firmly enough, we're not going deep enough within, we don't subside completely, but to the extent to which we are self-attentive, to that extent do we subside. In order to subside deep enough, in order to be swallowed by our own real nature, the pure awareness, the light, the gem of light that Bhagavan refers to in this verse 18, that is ever shining in our heart as I, in other words, the light of pure awareness, in order to be swallowed by that, we need to be so keenly self-attentive that we cease to be aware of anything else. But at first, when we start this practice, we're not able to be so keenly self-attentive because we still have desires and attachments for other things. The seeds that give rise to those desires and attachments are what Bhagavan calls Vishaya Vasanas. That is the inclination to seek happiness in Vishayas. That means in things other than ourselves. So the, this, this practice of self-investigation, by holding, trying to hold on to ourselves, we are gradually weakening the Vishaya Vasanas and cultivating the love to attend to ourself alone. So Patient and persistent practice is absolutely essential in order to succeed in this path. So when we're starting, yes, it may be helpful to set aside time to try and be self-attentive. But Bhagavan actually recommended being self-attentive all the time. We may not be able to achieve that, but that is what we should be working towards. So though it is very useful to set aside some time for trying to go deeper within, we should try to hold on to this self-attentiveness, whatever we may be doing. Because whatever else we may be doing, the one thing we always know 
is our own existence, I am. So we can be holding on to that, at least to some extent, even in the midst of other activities. So uh, it is certainly helpful to set aside time for this, uh, for going a little bit deeper into the practice, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't um, set aside only that time for self, being self-attentive. Throughout the day, we can try to be self-attentive. There are so many times in the day when our mind is not, um, need not be attending to anything else. For example, if we are, if we are traveling to work, we may be traveling on the bus. While traveling on the bus, we can be attending to ourselves, or we may walk to work. We can attend to ourselves when we walk to work. We we take lunch break. We take toilet break. There's so many opportunities when our mind is not wholly engaged in other things. When we can be self-attentive, even in the midst of doing other work, even if we're doing mental work, we can to some extent hold on to this self-attentiveness if we have love to do so. Because whatever we may be aware of, we are always aware I am. The problem is because of our interest in other things, we overlook this awareness I am. Though it's ever clearly shining within us, and it's the one thing that we always know. So we, as we cultivate more and more love and interest in knowing what we are, even in the midst of our activities, we will find that this self-attentiveness will go on, at least to some extent. But uh, in answer, simple answer to your question, yes, it is good to try to be to to set aside some time at first. But that our practice shouldn't be limited to those times. We should try to uh, hold on to this self attentiveness throughout the day, whatever else we may be doing. I I hope that's a clear and adequate answer to that question. The next question: There is only one jiva, which is me. The rest is a projection of my, of my vasanas, just like in a dream. I believe in this, and in, and in order to wake up from this dream, one needs to destroy the roots of this vasana ego. Here is my question: I can ask Arunachala to destroy my ego, as Bhagwan does in this song, but I should be sincere in my asking. A meaning I should mean it wholeheartedly. This means I should be ready to let go of all that is in my life, including me. Here, where it is difficult, the question is: Is the process of letting go gradual, or um, does it happen with time as I become ripe for it? I do remember once uh, uh, the metaphor of the withdrawing of darkness as the sun shines gradually. So should I just be patient and yield to it, and it will do its function in me in eradicating the me of the ego? Thank you. Uh, yes, Aranacha will eradicate ego, but how does Aranacha eradicate ego? So long as our attention is going outwards, we are resisting the grace of Aranacha. In order to, for our, our nature will not kill us until we are willing to surrender ourselves completely. And we surrender ourselves 
by holding on to ourselves. That is, by being self-attentive, ego subsides. And by, by holding on to ourselves, we're letting go of everything else. And we're also letting go of the person we seem to be. So we subside back into our source. So that holding on to self-attentiveness is absolutely essential. See the very first verse of Akshramulai, what Bhagavan says, you you eradicate ego of those who meditate on you in the heart. What is our nature in the heart? As he said, today I quoted that, um, for example, the uh, second verse of our nature, Pancharatnam. There Bhagavan says very clearly, our nature, you are that which is always shy, always dancing in the heart as I. So meditating on me, him in the heart means attending to him as ourself, as I. That is the means by which he destroys ego. So even if we meditate on his outward form, his outward form will gradually push us within to see him as he actually is. Because though he appears in the outward form of this hill, his real form, his swarupa, is that which is shining in our heart as I. So the purpose of that outward form of Arunachala is to turn our attention within. So, since his aim is to turn our attention within so that he can swallow us, we can yield to his grace by trying our best to turn within. By trying our best to turn within, we are trying to avoid resisting the pull in inward pull of his grace. So, yes, it, it is prayer is, nece is necessary, but the prayer shouldn't be prayer is not just empty words, it should be a wholehearted longing uh, that is heart melting longing for that. And that heart melting longing is expressed most perfectly by turning our attention within. So, as Bhagavan said, surrender itself is a mighty prayer, mightiest of all prayers. And how do we surrender? By turning our attention within. So we 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 shouldn't think, oh, I surrender to our natural, let him do everything, and then carry on our life as normal. No, because we are not, that's not, we don't surrender to our natural just by saying, oh, I surrender. Surrender means we have to subside back into our source, and we can subside back into our source only by holding on to our own being, which is our natural. Um, regarding what you said about um, Ekajiva, the one jiva, that is true, but we need to understand what is meant by that. <clears throat> For example, I'm aware of myself as I am Michael. That doesn't mean that Michael is the one jiva who is seeing all this. Michael is its, but that is, the jiva is the one who is dreaming all this. Michael, or who, whichever person we take ourselves to be, is as much a part of this dream as every other person. So it is not the person we seem to be who is seeing this dream, who is projecting this dream and is seeing it. It is the I that is aware of itself as I am this person that is seeing. So, so long as we are looking outwards, we seem to be this person. Because we seem to be this person, this person seems to be real. So all the other persons seem to be real. So when we're looking outwards, we should behave, we should treat others as we treat the person we take ourselves to be. The reason Bhagavan taught this Eskajiva uh, teaching is, is to help us to turn our attention within. That is, if we recognize that all this is just a dream, 
And the, I alone am a dreamer. Not I, Michael, am a dreamer, but the I that is aware of itself as I am Michael is the dreamer. Or the, the, the I that is aware of itself as whoever the person may be, that is the dreamer. To, when we, if we recognize that, it'll make it much easier for us to turn within to find out who am I, the one who is seeing all this, the one who is dreaming all this. So this Ekajiva teaching is a very deep and subtle teaching. We need to understand it correctly. So it's very important to understand Bhagavan never said there's just one person. That would be absurd. Of course, there are so many people. And the person we take ourselves to be is no more special than any other person. The only difference between this person and the other person, this happens to be the person who we now take to be ourselves and through whose five senses we are seeing the world. But this person is no more real, no more important than any other person. But what we are to investigate is not this person. It is the I that is aware of itself as I am this person. That I that is aware of itself as I am this person, that is ego. So ego or jiva is not the person. It is the I that is, mistakes a particular person to be itself. So it's, it's very important that we understand this correctly. Otherwise, it's very, because Bhagavan's teachings are very deep and very subtle, it's very easy for us to misunderstand and misinterpret them. So, so long as we're looking outwards, there are many people, and all those many people are just as real as the person we take ourselves to be. Uh, but in order to turn within, we need to recognize the one who is seeing all this, the one who is seeing some, some particular person as I am this person, that is the one jiva. That is what we need to destroy by turning within to investigate who is this I who is aware of itself as I am this body, I am this person. I hope that's a helpful clarification. Well, the next question is, how to know when I am truly self-attentive, even after reading and practicing? If we were truly self-attentive, in the sense that if we were 100% self-attentive, we would be swallowed by Aranachala, by Bhagavan, by the light of pure awareness that is always shining in our heart as I, there would be no coming back. So when we are practicing self-investigation, we are trying to be as self-attentive as possible. That is, our aim is, now our attention is facing outwards towards other things. Our aim is, so to speak, to turn 180 degrees away from all other things back towards ourselves. So how far we've turned, whether we're turning 10 degrees or 20 degrees or 90 degrees or 120 degrees, 150 degrees, we don't know. All we need to do is to try to be as self-attentive as possible. If we were 100% self-attentive, um, if we turn the full 180 degrees, we would thereby cease to be aware of anything else whatsoever. Any thought, any feeling, any perception, any memory, anything. Everything would be would, would, would draw into the background and all that would remain would be Kirmail Engum Kilarali Mani, that gem of light that is ever shining in our heart. In all times, in all places, in all states. <clears throat> so we, so long, if we have a doubt whether we are under, whether we are attending to ourselves correctly, well, we're not attending to ourselves perfectly yet. But at least are we 
are we uh, coming are we are we moving in the right direction let's say back within the only way to 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 be sure about that is to understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly. That is, people often ask how to practice self-investigation, how to practice self-inquiry. We can understand how to practice this to the extent to which we understand Bhagavan's teachings, because this practice is all his teachings are pointing towards this one practice. So the more clearly and deeply we understand his teachings, the more clearly and deeply we will understand what the practice is. But in order to understand his teachings clearly and deeply, we need to put them into practice. Because the real clarity, it, it's important to read his works carefully. It's important to think about them deeply. By that we get a certain degree of clarity. But the real clarity comes from within. So to the extent to which we put his teachings into practice and go within, to that extent, will we gain the clarity to truly understand what is the implications of his words, that the meaning and the implication of his words. So this is a, a, an incremental process uh, that is gradually, gradually, as we practice more and more, it all becomes clearer to us and we go deeper within. So the, the greatest aid to the practice, the practice is what is called nidityasana. Nidityasana means deep contemplation. It implies deep contemplation on our own real nature, on our being, I am. The greatest aid to this is, very, is to read Bhagavan's teachings carefully and think about them deeply. And when I say Bhagavan's teachings, I'm not just talking about all the uh, questions and answers, because often these, that is, firstly, these often weren't very well recorded. That is, what the people recorded was what they understood. Secondly, Bhagavan was asking, answering a wide variety of questions. So he had to give answers appropriate to not just to the question, but to the questioner, because he knew where the questioner is coming from. He gave appropriate answers. So everything that is written in uh, talks and day by day and Maharsha's gospel and letters, we can't take to be the pure teachings of Bhagavan. But Bhagavan's teachings in their purest form are expressed in his own original writings, in Aranachastuti Panchakam, Uludu Napadu, Padeshundia, Nana, Anma Bide, Aplapatu, Ekama Panchakam, these works. These are where we can get Bhagavan's teachings in their purest form. So carefully studying these, or if we don't know the original language, carefully studying reliable translations of these is the greatest aid. But we shouldn't just read. We need to understand. So we need to think carefully about it. And most importantly of all, we need to put it into practice. So the more we go deep in the practice, the more we will understand his teachings. And the more we understand his teachings, the more it will be clear to us that though our self-attentiveness is certainly not perfect, at least it's moving in the right direction. I, I hope this is a, an adequate answer to your question. So, understanding Bhagavan's teachings is not our aim. 
but it is it is a means to reach our aim because only to the extent to which we clearly understand his teaching will we clearly understand the practice and only to the extent that we understand the practice can we actually go deep in the practice so i hope that's a, a helpful answer to that question well, we don't have any more questions at this time so maybe we can uh, do a few minutes of meditative meditation or if you'd like to to say something, Michael? If anyone, whenever anyone wants to ask, they can ask. Until then, keeping quiet is best of all. But keeping quiet doesn't just mean not talking. It doesn't even just mean not thinking. But real quietness is the quietness of our own being. So it's only by turning within and holding on to our being that we can subside in the real silence. The silence that is unaffected by the, the movement of the, the mind or the movement of the tongue. There's a question here from Amit. There is an emphasis on effort and perseverance. Yes, absolutely. That is, if you're this is, Bhagavan's teachings are all about practice. And this practice does require effort because the nature of the mind is to go outwards. The nature of the mind is to be swayed by its vishaya vasanas and to hold on to things other than itself. So this practice, we are, we are, so to speak, swimming against the current. That is the natural flow of the mind is to go outwards. We are trying to go within. So that does require effort. If we if we don't make the effort to attend to ourselves, our mind will be wandering outside. That's the nature of the mind. So we are trying to curb this mind from going outwards by turning it within. We are not just trying to stop it going outwards, because if we just try and stop it going outwards, it will end up in layer. We are trying to make this positive effort of turning within. By turning within, we are thereby curbing it from going outwards. So uh, effort is absolutely necessary. And this, in order to succeed, it's not just one or two efforts. We need to persevere in this effort until we, until ego is annihilated. So long as there's ego, it should continue persevering in making the effort to hold on to itself. In other words, we should make the effort to continue holding on to ourselves. Sorry, there's one other question that pop, uh, popped up there, or one comment. I didn't see what it was. It says uh, thoughts on, it's in the form of a question, and mm. I think it means that are there any thoughts on the teachings of Ramana Maharishi in his own words by Arthur Osborne? Um, I haven't read that book in more than 40 years. It was one of the first books I read. Um, it, it, that is a compilation of uh, dialogues from talks and other books. So it is no better than, than the quality, that it depends on the quality of the recording in those books, which is often not very, uh, not very clear. Because as I said, when, when people record Bhagavan's teachings, supposing you sit and you listen to a conversation, supposing after, after this uh, video is over, after this uh, Zoom meeting is over, supposing you, you decide you want to write down what, was the, what were all the questions and answers, how much will you actually be able to remember? 
you won't be able to remember it all perfectly. You won't be able to remember every word that was said. What you will remember is the impression that it made on your mind. And the impression it makes on your mind is determined by your understanding. If you've got a deeper understanding, you'll understand more deeply. If your understanding isn't so clear, you'll understand according to your understanding. So books like Talks and Day by Day and these books, they are... Firstly, the recordings are not perfect because it's it's un, it, what is recorded there is the understanding that certain people had of um, that the particular recorded their understanding of what Bhagavan said. Secondly, as I said earlier, when Bhagavan answers questions, people, if you read books like talks, you will see so many questions. People, very few come like Shiva Prakashan Pillai. And the first question they ask is, who am I? And persisting in following that line of inquiry, people come and ask one question and then they jump to another question. They come with a list of questions and they tick off the question. Often they're not, they're not questioning very deeply. So Bhagavan answers according to their level of understanding to try and... Um, in the way that is most appropriate to the person who's asking the question. So often what Bhagavan says is not his pure teaching. It is what is suitable to that particular individual at that particular time. So these, these books of dialogues, they're interesting, and there are some useful things in them, but we can't rely upon them to be Bhagavan's pure teachings. So the teachings of Ramana Maharshi in his own words, it's not actually in his own words, but it's in the words of those who Bhagavan spoke in Tamil. What he, the, what people understood of what he meant, they recorded in English. So it's not actually in Bhagavan's own words. Moreover, if I remember correctly, Osborne also adds his own explanations there. And one of the things he explains that is very misleading, he, his understanding was that self-investigation means meditating two digits to the right from the center of the chest. That is, he misunderstood what Bhagavan taught about the heart. What Bhagavan means by the heart is I, our own being. We are self of the heart. But because certain people whose minds are very outward going persisted in asking Bhagavan in the early days, this heart you talk of, where in the body is the heart? Then Bhagavan said, the heart is not in the body or out of the body. The heart is everything. It is the center of everything. It, it, uh, I think once Bhagavan said, it is the center with a center everywhere and a circumference nowhere. In other words, it's all pervading. As he says in this verse of Akshramalai that we talked about today, money. the gem of light that shines above, below, and everywhere. That is what Bhagavan means by the heart. The heart is, the, is as he says in that verse of Pancharatnam, the second verse of Pancharatnam, which I quoted today. Since you always dance in the heart as I, they say your name is heart itself. In other words, heart is our nature itself. So it is not a place in the body. But for those whose minds are outward going and who persisted in asking Bhagavan, this heart you talk of, is it the same as the Anahata chakra, that the heart chakra? Bhagavan said no. Then where in the body is it? 
Then Bhagavan said, no, it's not in the body. It is the, it is the, it's beyond time. It's beyond space. But still, because they're being, having that type of yoga mindset, but thinks all in terms of the body, they persisted. So eventually Bhagavan said, if at all a place is to be assigned for the heart in the body, it is two digits to write from the center of the chest. And Bhagavan explained the reason for that. Supposing you 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 ask a group of school children who can who can um, who can uh, do this sum correctly, a, a boy may say, "I can do it correctly." He points at his chest. He doesn't say, "I can do it correctly." And if if you ask um, who will um, run to the shop to fetch the newspaper or to fetch the post. Um, he will say, I will run. He won't point at his feet and say, I will run. We all naturally point at two digits to right from the center of the chest when we refer to ourselves. We can also, there's also other evidence for this. For example, supposing you're walking down the street and suddenly the, the car behind you honks its horn, you get a shock. If you pay attention, you will feel that shock here. Or it's when you hear a loud explosion or something, any type of shock, you will feel it here. So many times, if we observe, we feel something here. But that is the body. That's an object. That's a place in the body. It's an object. That is not what we actually are. That is the center of ego in the body. Because now ego is pervasive. When we rise as ego, we feel we are aware of ourselves as I am this body. Which part of the body are we aware of? Am I here or am I here or am I here? No, we feel I is pervaded throughout the body. But the center where we feel ourselves to be centered is here. That's why we naturally point to, when we refer to ourselves, we point here. That's as simple as that. But that is only our place with relation to this body. So it's only applicable to ego. What we are to investigate is our real nature, which is our own being. Our own being is not limited by this body. Our own being has is infinite. It has no limits. It's eternal. It's a, uh, undivided. It's self-shining. It's infinite. It's devoid of any limitation whatsoever. So Bhagavan never said, to meditate on the heart to, to right from the center of the chest. In fact, there's a passage in talks where Bhagavan is asked about this. Someone asked him, Bhagavan, should I meditate on the heart two digits to the right? And he clearly says, if, well, what is recorded there is very, very clear. He says, meditation should not be on the right or the left. Meditation should be on I am alone. So that is what Bhagavan means by meditating on the heart. Not meditating on a place in the body, but meditating on our own being, I am. So Osborne was very misleading as far as the practice is concerned because he himself didn't understand the practice. So since he didn't... The, 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 uh, the, what he compiled was a selection of not very well-recorded teachings, which were often not Bhagavan's pure teachings because they were given to different people at different times according to their question. So poor recordings of what is not actually Bhagavan's pure teachings are compiled by someone who themselves doesn't have a very deep understanding of Bhagavan's teaching. 
so it is not the most useful of books. Um, there are much more useful books if you want to go deep into Bhagavan's teaching. There's no harm in reading all these books, but we need to read with discrimination. If we don't, don't read with discrimination, we are liable to be misled, thinking, oh, this is what Bhagavan meant, or this is what Bhagavan meant. If we want to really understand the heart of Bhagavan's teachings, we need to study his own original writings. Because there he's given his teachings in, a, in their pure form. Uh, the next question, Michael, is um, could Michael talk a little bit about people who have dementia? Are there vasanas still there but, in, but unable to manifest due to the brain being affected? Where has the memory gone? With dementia, they suddenly disappear to the people around them. The body this person is lost, so to speak. Um, yes, dementia is a condition of the brain. The, the brain is obviously not the mind, but the when we take ourselves to be a body, we take on limitations. So we are taking on the limit. The body means not just the physical body, but the whole five sheets. We're taking on the, the, the limitations of these. So when the brain is no longer functioning uh, optimally, that sets further limitations on us. But, but essentially, there's no difference between a person with dementia and a person without dementia. But just a person with dementia is not able to use their mind so effectively in, in terms of uh, navigating this world, they forget. They don't. Rec they may forget people. They may even forget their own, um, their own children or their own husband or wife or things. It, these are all limitations imposed upon them. But just like everyone else, they're clearly aware of themselves as I. They may not remember who they are, but they clearly know I am. I. I am this body. Who is this body? I don't know whether this body is called um, Michael or John or, or, or uh, Rama or Krishna. What is the name of this body? I can't remember now, but it's definitely this body is me. So that is, they are still, they are still identified with the body, but because of the, 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 the deterioration of the uh, capacity of the brain, that has an effect on what they can remember, on what they can understand. Um, and um, it, it, has, it, it limits them in many ways. But supposing someone who is following Bhagavan's path has, uh, begins to suffer from de dementia, if, they, if we have a love to turn within, and to hold on to our being, we can do so, but dementia won't prevent that at all. We can continue doing so because self-investigation depends entirely upon the love. The love we have to attend to ourselves, that will, cannot be affected by dementia. Dementia also cannot stop the vasanas. It will, the vasanas may manifest in a different way, but the vasanas are still active. Um, Every thought, every perception, every memory is nothing but a sprouting of our vasanas. Uh, that is, 
all our everything that we experience is called vishaya. Vishaya means objects or phenomena. So all the objects of our experience are vishayas, and the seeds that give rise to vishayas are vishaya vasanas. So the vasanas are still operating. They may be manifesting in a slightly different way because of the dementia. Um, sometimes when people do, uh, suffer from dementia. Sometimes people say, oh, it it has changed their personality. A person we think to be very sweet and very kind, when they suffer from dementia, they can become very impatient, intolerant and everything. It may seem to us. But if they didn't have those vasanas of impatience and intolerance and everything, they, they wouldn't manifest in the state of dementia. So but what is the, in the state of dementia... There are, there are certain capacities that are limited. One of those capacities is our capacity to, most of us, but because we are able to curb our vasanas, we do, for instance, we don't say, if we're in company, we don't say, we, we may find a person, we may be talking to a person, and we may find this person very boring, very uninteresting, but we don't say to them to your face, to their face, they, uh, oh, we, you're so boring. No, we listen to them patiently and kindly and considerately. When a person, so the, even if we're not naturally a kind and considerate person, because we have to live in this society, we have to, be, we learn to behave in a certain way. So we, 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 there's certain social etiquettes we learn. It may not be our nature, but we behave like that because that's a way to live in this world. When we, when we begin to lose our, uh, um, some of our mental capacity due to dementia, some of those inhibitions on how we should behave may fall off. So often people who are, who are suffering from dementia, they, um, they may, um, behave in a very inappropriate way. For, for, for instance, sometimes um, elderly men, they may be in a state of dementia and they may be taken care of by a, by a young, um, a, a good-looking, nice-looking young nurse. Often these old men, will, they may be married men, faithful, good husband to their wife, but they begin flirting with the nurse who oh. may be... 60, 70 years younger than them. So they're losing their, in, they're losing their inhibition. They're losing the, the natural social constraints. But the vasanas are the same vasanas. It's just the vasanas manifest a bit more freely sometimes in dementia. So the, it, it doesn't change our spiritual state at all. It's just the mental state is different. So, as I say, if we are following Bhagavan's uh, teachings um, sincerely, while we still have our normal mental faculties about us, and we have loved to attend to ourselves, that will continue even in the state of dementia. If we are inclined to surrender ourselves to Bhagavan, that will continue in the state of dementia. Uh, thank you, Michael. That, that was my my question. It's it's interesting to know that the Masanas still still come through um but in a in a slightly different way in a slightly different way yes yes yeah and that is 
we, Bhagavan says in the beginning of the tenth paragraph of Nana, he says, though Bishaya Vasanas, which come from time immemorial, rise in countless numbers like ocean waves. So throughout our life, uh, moment to moment, so many Vishaya Vasanas are, are rising in our mind, pulling us in this way and that way. So certain Vasanas, we we may have, but we don't, aren't aware of at all because they haven't risen to the surface in this lifetime. So maybe when we, when we go into a state of dementia, Vasanas that hadn't previously manifested, mm -hmm. maybe Vasanas we weren't even aware of, may manifest. Mm -hmm. But if we spend our life trying to follow Bhagavan's path, we are cultivating Satvasana. And that Satvasana will help us to curb whatever Vasanas may arise. So when, when we see in an in a elderly person who's suffering from dementia, some people say, oh, they've had a personality change. It's only the surface that has changed. The underlying vasanas are still the same. Maybe vasanas that that person wasn't even aware of earlier are now rising to the surface. Who knows? Yeah, so it's still the same person. They just it's still appear, the same person. It's still the, it's still the same ego, is most importantly yeah, of all. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense, actually, yes. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Right. Before we go to the next question addressed to you, Michael, there's a general question uh, which I think might be useful for uh, everybody. Um, and it was sort of tied to, the, to an earlier question. This is simply that as someone who is just trying to start this journey is Nanyar, who am I? The booklet, uh, not sufficient. Uh, should we need to learn more from other teachings of Maharishi right away? And it continues... Um, as a starter, what should we meditate on to help uh, to help us turn inwards, or should we do self investigation? What stop the outward going thoughts during meditation? The best introduction to Bhagavan's teachings, I think, is uh, is is Nana. Um, it, it is it's yeah we can say it's the best introduction to Bhagavan's teachings. It is also, in a sense, the most one of the most advanced texts. The, that is, it's. It's a, it's a, it's a, such a valuable text because it's a text that anyone can read and get something out of it. But as we go deeper and deeper and deeper into Bhagavan's teachings, we're able to see more and more depth in um, in Nana. So Nana is is one of the works which should accompany us on our spiritual journey at all times. I'm not saying you should necessarily have a physical book with you. If you have a physical book with you, well and good. But we we it's a text we should read and be thoroughly familiar with. But as far as Nana is concerned, there are several different versions. There are different question and answer versions. But Bhagavan himself rewrote it in the form of an essay. And when he rewrote it in the form of an essay, he refined it. Certain things that were there in the question, in some of the question-answer versions, Bhagavan may have said those things, but they're things that could be misinterpreted. So Bhagavan removed certain things and he retained certain things and he clarified, he refined the way it was exp expressed. So the, the most important, the most reliable version of Nana is the essay version. 
the question and answer versions are all useful, but they're not as as useful as the essay version. Secondly, there are many translations, and often the translations are very, very free translations. So they're reflecting the understanding of the translator rather than what Bhagavan said. So we need to, it's important if we are not able to read the original Tamil, it's important that we uh, find and rely on a good translation, reliable translation, accurate translation. Um, is it the only work we need? Um, it, we can say, yes, Nana itself is sufficient. We don't need anything else. But fortunately for us, Bhagavan has given us other works. He's given us Uludunapdu. He's given us Upadeshundia. He's given us Amma He's given us Aranachastutipanchikam. All of these, all of Bhagavan's original writings are very important. So I don't, I wouldn't recommend neglecting any of them. And we, Bhagavan has written actually very little. Arunachastutipanchum consists of what? 108 verses in Aksharam, right? And those are very short verses, just two, two lines. Um, and then nine verses in Nabamani Malai, 11 in Patikam, um, eight in, um, in uh, uh, Ashtakam and five in Pancharatnam. That in all comes to about 33 plus 108. That's hundred, just over 150 verses in Naranachastuti Panchakam. And then there's Ulutunapdu, 40 verses, Upadeshundia, 30 verses, Anmavide, um, five, uh, Ekama Panchakam, five, Apalapatu, four. Um, some of the verses of, in Uludunapdu Anubandam and some of the verses in, um, in, uh, Upadesha Tanipaka, that is the, the, the stray verses that previously weren't uh, compiled into a, into a separate work. Um, Sadwam compiled them as a text called Upadesha Tanipaka. So like, that's very much like Uludunapdu Anubandam. It's a mixture of original verses of Bhagavan and translated verses. So there are many important ideas in those two works also. But because some of them are translated, we can't take everything as entirely Bhagavan's teaching, but very, very important teachings are there in those two works. So this, in all, it's, it's, it's maybe about 250 verses or so Bhagavan has written, plus Nana, 20 paragraphs. It is not a huge amount. It's, if we read these Often we will be, be, we will become familiar with them, so we'll know what Bhagavan said where. Once it becomes familiar with them, when we're thinking, we'll often be thinking about, oh, Bhagavan said like this here, he said like that there. We try and understand it and try and and as we go deeper in the practice, we find oh. Here in Aranachastu Pancham, this is what Bhagavan was talking about. His teachings become clearer and clearer and become more and more meaningful as we go deeper and deeper within. So, in a sense, yes, Nana is all we need. But since Bhagavan has been gracious to give us so much more, but not a huge amount more, it's good to know all his original writings, be very familiar with them. And as far as its oral teachings is concerned, the most reliable recording of his oral teachings is Guru Vachaka Kavai. Because though Murugana recorded in verse, and Bhagavan obviously wasn't uh, talking orally in verse, he, Bhagavan was talking in prose, but Murugana understood the 
had a deep understanding of Bhagavan's teaching because he had fully thrown himself into Bhagavan's teaching. So he clearly understood what Bhagavan was talking about. So he was able to express the essence of what Bhagavan said in verses. And he showed all those verses to Bhagavan. Bhagavan would sometimes correct. Sometimes he'd rewrite the whole lines or sometimes three quarters of a verse, Bhagavan would rewrite it. So Guru Kukovai is very much a, a work of collaboration between um, Murugana, between Bhagavan and Murugana. So second to the importance to Bhagavan's own original writings is Guru Kukovai. But um, this Nana is a very, very good starting point, and it's a very good text to read again and again and again because there is so much depth in uh, Nana. It's such a such a valuable text. So as we go deeper in the practice, we will under like, as with all of Bhagavan's teachings, as we go deeper in the practice, we will understand more and more. So we shouldn't just limit ourselves to one text, but we should focus mainly on Bhagavan's original writings. I hope that's a useful answer to that question. The second part uh, so it builds up on it, which is as a starter, as a beginner, what should we meditate on to help turn inwards? Or should we do self-investigation? That is, watch, stop the outward going thoughts during meditation. That is self-investigation. It can be described as meditating on ourselves. It's a bit different to meditation because why we are meditating on ourselves is to know what we actually are. That's why Bhagavan generally referred to it as vichara, the investigation. And the verb he used, the, the, the equivalent term in Tamil is natam, which also means investigation. So that's another term Bhagavan uses a lot, both as a, both in its noun form and in its verb form. So he, he generally he referred to it as investigation because it's not just... It's not in meditation, we can be just trying to concentrate on one thing. But when we are trying to focus our attention on ourselves, we are doing so for a purpose. We're trying to see what we actually are. That's why Bhagavan called it a, a self investigation. But he also sometimes referred to it as meditation. For example, in the 10th paragraph of Nana, he describes it as Swarupa Dhyana. That means meditation on our real nature. In other words, being self-attentive, it all amounts to the same thing. So, in order to um, to learn how to meditate on ourselves, and in order to um, to become more skillful in meditating on ourselves, the best way is to meditate on ourselves. Meditating on things other than ourselves is fundamentally different to meditating on ourselves because the natural flow of the mind is to go outwards. And by going outwards and holding on to things other than itself, mind survives. That is, the, the, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludranapadu, Ego is a formless phantom, and right, uh, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. So the very nature of ego is to grasp form. Ego itself is a formless phantom, so whatever form it grasps is something other than itself. So form here means 
anything other than ourselves, any thought or any perception or any, the whole world is nothing but forms. The whole mind is nothing but forms. That every thought, every feeling, every uh, perception, every memory, every, it was all just forms. Um, in the sense in which Bhagavan is using that term form. So attending to anything other than ourself nourishes and sustains ego. Whereas attending to ourself brings about the dissolution of ego. Because in the same verse 25, Bhagavan says, Tedinal Otum Pidicum. That means if sought, it takes flight. If sought, what does if sought mean? If ego seeks itself, in other words, if it tries to hold on to itself, instead of holding on to other things, if it tries to hold on to itself, it will take flight. That means it will run away. That's a metaphorical way of saying it will subside and dissolve back into its source. So but there's no need to um, meditate on anything else. If we are attracted to Bhagavan's path, what Bhagavan has asked us to meditate upon is ourself. So let us start by meditating on ourselves. We, we, it's not necessary to practice any other sort of meditation. Because other meditations are training the mind to go outwards. We're trying, our aim is to train the mind to go inwards, towards ourself alone. So uh, for whether we're a beginner or whether we've been doing this for um, 40 years or 40 lifetimes, doesn't matter. We all, the best thing we can do, the most effective way of purifying the mind, and the only way to eradicate the mind is self-investigation. So why don't we, why shouldn't we just start with this practice itself? That's why Bhagavan of his own accord never encouraged any other practice. Of course, if people asked him, Bhagavan, can I do a japa? Bhagavan said, oh yes, very good, do japa. Because that's what they want to do. But one is going to say, no, no, don't do Japa. And Japa can also help in a roundabout way. If they do it with love, it will slowly purify the mind. But the most effective means to purify the mind is the self-investigation. As Bhagavan makes clear in Upadesha Undia, he, he, in verse 8 of Upadesha Undia, after describing all the other practices of bhakti, and each is more effective than the previous one in purifying the mind, he, in verse 8, he says, rather than Anya Baba, that means meditating on God as something other than ourselves, or meditating on anything other than ourselves, Ananya Baba, in which he is I, that is with the understanding that he is I, meditating on Anya means other, and Anya means what is not other. What is not other than ourselves? Ourself alone. So it, Ananya Baba means meditating on ourselves. And he said, that is an etinum utimum, that is the best among all. Meaning, in that context, it's the most effective means to purify the mind. And all the other practices, any, any um, bhakti or meditation or japa or yoga or any other practice, they are efficacious only to the extent to which they purify the mind. They can't do more than purify the mind. And purifying the mind is necessary. But the most effective means to purify the mind is self-investigation. And self-investigation is not only a means to purify the mind, it's also a means to eradicate the mind, to cut up the root of the mind, namely ego. So it, um, 
Bhagavan wouldn't of its own accord encourage anyone to practice anything other than self-investigation. If they say, Bhagavan, can I also do this? Can I do Gayatri or can I do um can I do Namashivaya or can I do Japa or can I do Dhyana or whatever? Bhagavan say, yes, yes, if you, that's what you want to do, by all means do that. That's all very good. It's all very good, but none of it is as good as self-investigation. So of his own accord. If you read books like talks and so on, we can see Bhagavan is constantly trying to point people's attention back towards themselves. Who is it who is asking this question? That type of retort Bhagavan often gives because he's always trying to encourage us to investigate ourselves. But if people are not interested in investigating themselves, if they're more interested in some yoga practice or some uh, japa or dhyana or something, oh, yes, yes, but one will encourage them in their own way, knowing that is what they what is suitable for them at their stage of spiritual development. But if we come for Bhagavan's teachings, Bhagavan's teaching is self-investigation and self-surrender, which are one and the same thing. If we investigate ourselves, we are thereby surrendering ourselves. So I hope that adequately answers that question. Uh, the next question is, how to be self-attentive whilst going about our daily chores? Are we not using our mind to do both? So what is the way to get around this? Thank you. <clears throat> At first, it seems to us to be necessary to use our mind to do the various tasks that this body and mind have to do during the day. Um, so we, so long as that seems to us to be necessary, we can try and divide our attention, at least a little attention we give to ourselves, even though it seems to us to be necessary to attend to other things also. However, as we go deeper in the practice, it will become more and more clear to us, but we need not attend to anything else. We attending to ourselves is alone sufficient. Nothing else need to be attended to. Why? Because everything else is happening according to Prarabdha. As Bhagavan says in a note to his mother, in the first sentence he says, according to the uh, Prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, being there, there, that implies in the heart of each of them, will make them uh, dance, literally it means, or make them act. So, he who is for that means God or Guru. So Bhagavan will Bhagavan has ordained a certain prarabdha for us. We cannot experience anything that is not in our prarabdha, and we cannot avoid what is in our prarabdha. So it has to be experienced. And in order for us to experience that, there are certain actions we need to do. It may be our, our destiny to have a nice tasty meal today. But in order to have a nice taste of meal, we need to put the food in our mouth. So there are actions that we need to do in order for us to experience what we are destined to experience. Those actions we will be made to do. So if it's our destiny, say, to have a responsible job, um, it may seem to us at first, but we have to attend to that. We've got so many responsibilities and we have to attend to it. And at home, we've got so many responsibilities. We've got a family to take care of. We've got to pay the bills, pay the rent, all these things. We seem to have so many responsibilities. But see what Bhagavan says. But in the 13th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan starts by defining what is surrender. He says, 
Anma Chintane Tabira, Bere Chintane Columbaviku, Satrum Idum Kodamol, Administer Paranai Irupade, Tane Isanukuali Padam. That means not giving even the slightest room uh, for the rising of any thought other than thought of oneself, atmachintana. Atmachintana literally means thought of oneself. It implies self-attentiveness. So not thinking of anything else, but attending only to oneself, it implies. Atmanishta paranayirapate, that means being only as atmanishta, uh, param, one who is, a, who is fixed as oneself. How are we to be fixed as ourselves? By not thinking of anything other than ourselves, by thinking of ourselves alone, by attending to ourselves. That is giving ourselves, that alone is giving ourselves to God. So what Bhagavan says is if we want to surrender to God, don't think of anything else, just hold on to self-attentiveness. That is truly giving ourselves to God. Then in the next sentence, he says, however much burden we place on God, he will bear all of it. So what is the implication of both? First sentence, he says, not thinking of anything else, attending to ourself alone, that is giving ourselves to God. But I've got so many important things. I've got, I've got my work to do. I've got my bills to pay. I've got my family to look after. How can I be attending only to myself and not to all these things? Bhagavan assures us, give all the burden... The burden of doing your work, paying the bills, paying the rent, looking after your family, being kind and um, and being a kind and loving wife or husband and mother or father, or whatever it is, son or daughter, whatever it is, all these will be done perfectly if you surrender your body, speech and mind to Bhagavan by holding on to yourself. So the implication is we need not attend to anything other than ourselves. If we attend to ourselves, we are thereby giving ourselves wholly to him. So he will then use our mind, speech, and body to do whatever they're meant to do. We are the whole burden of we are giving the burden to him. He will bear however much burden we give him, he will bear all of it. Bhagavan gives us that assurance. Then in the next sentence, he says, When one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas, Parameshwara Shakti means the supreme ruling power or the power of God. In other words, Bhagavan's grace is driving everything. Everything is happening as it's meant to happen. All karyas means whatever is meant to happen, whatever ought to happen, whatever is meant to be done, whatever ought to be done, he's making, he's driving it all. So whatever we have to do, whatever we're meant to do, he will make us do it. That is, us means our mind, speech, and body. So he says, when that one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all karyas, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that? The implication is only one thing is necessary to do. Think of yourself, attend to yourself, Leave the rest to Bhagavan. He will take care of everything else. And then in the, to drive home the point, to emphasize what he said in the first three sentences, he gives a very beautiful analogy in the fourth and last sentence. He refers to a passenger traveling on a train. When you're traveling on the train, you know the train is carrying all the burden. So why should you suffer carrying your little luggage on your head? Since a train, whether you're carrying your luggage on your head or you put it on the seat beside you, the train is carrying it. So if we, uh, the wise traveler in the train 
We'll set the luggage aside and we'll travel happily, carefree. We should live our life accordingly. We should hold on to self-attentiveness and thereby live our life without any care, knowing that he will take care of everything. So truly speaking, as we go deeper in the practice, we will understand more and more. But whatever actions we this body, speech, and mind are destined to do, they will be, he will make them do. So it's no concern of ours. Our only concern should be to attend to ourselves. But it, at first it will seem, oh, no, no, that's not possible. I have to, how can I do my work? My work requires so much, um, so much mental uh, work. It's, uh, it requires attention. Yes, it seems like that at first, but even when you're doing that work, try as much as possible to be self-attentive. As you practice more and more and go deeper and deeper within, it will become more and more clear to you that your mind, speech, and body are doing what they're made to do. You need not concern yourself about that. They will do what they are made to do. He, that one Parameshwara Shakti, which is Bhagavan, will make them do whatever they're meant to do. So we need not be concerned about anything other than just attending to ourselves. But in order to attend to ourselves requires great love. Most of us don't have sufficient love, so our mind keeps on going outwards. We keep on worrying about how I'm going to pay the bills, how I'm going to pay the rent, how I'm going to solve this problem, how I'm going to solve that problem. We are still holding the luggage on our head. But as we go deeper and deeper, it becomes clearer and clearer to us that Bhagavan is taking care of everything. So our faith in him, our trust in him increases, and we happily put the luggage aside, leave it all to him. He will take care of everything. The next one is um, what to do when you are in contact with people and who, who are deeply suffering, mentally or physically, and are not open to Bhagavan's teachings, and sometimes are not even spiritual at all. In other words, they identify completely with the situation and seem to be totally immersed in sansara. There's a limit to what we can do. We can be kind and considerate and we can try and help them by simple kindness and consideration. But often we come across people in, in, in life who face problems and it's very clear to us what the solution to the problem is. They need to just... Um, but for them, it's, it's not clear at all. And if you tell them all you have to do is trust in Bhagavan and leave it all to him, he will take care of everything, that for them is meaningless. There's no point in saying to people, in giving someone advice, but you know they're not going to accept, you know they're not going to even relate to it. It, it doesn't mean anything to someone who is, uh, who is, um, whose mind is totally outward going. So there are a lot of problems we see in this world. Even those who are near and dear to us face problems. And often we would like to be able to help them, but we are powerless. Um, of course, if we can do anything to help them, we should help them. Of course. Whether they're near to, dear to us or a complete stranger, if when we see someone in need of any help, we should help them if we can. But we shouldn't assume that we can help everyone in all situations. There's so many problems of life. There's so many problems we face in life. We don't know what to do with it. I mean, which of us has problem has no problems that we but we 
for which there are no solutions. We just have to, we have to leave it to Bhagavan. We have to trust him. Every problem, no problems last forever. Problems come and problems go. So we, if we can't solve a problem, we just have to leave it to Bhagavan. Okay, Bhagavan, if you want to solve this problem, you'll solve it. If you want this problem to persist, let it persist. The, I can't do anything about this. So we leave everything to Bhagavan. Some people say, if you surrender your problems to Bhagavan, then they'll be solved. No way. If you surrender to Bhagavan, you shouldn't care whether they're solved or not. Because there's no guaranteeing, just because you leave, Bhagavan never said, if you leave your problems to me, I will solve your problems. If you, He said, if you leave everything to me, I will take, well, he didn't actually say that in so many words, but what we have to understand from his teaching, if we leave all problems to him, if we surrender to him, he will solve the root of all problems, which is ego. But we shouldn't expect, I've surrendered to Bhagavan, but why isn't he solving my problem? That is no surrender at all. Sur surrendering to him means not caring about the problem, knowing that he will take care of everything. And if he wants to solve the problem, he will solve the problem. If he wants the problem to persist, the problem will persist. The next question, if some other sadhanas have been done in the past, for example, asanas, pranayama, meditation, can this confuse the process of self-investigation if there is attachment to those sadhanas? How to get to sadhana clarity? Yes, sometimes the past, the past practices can be an impediment when we're trying to turn within. We just need to, just, just like we are trying to wean our mind off its Vishaya Vasanas, all its outward going Vasanas, these sadhanas also, we cultivate Vasanas by following these, by doing pranayama and Vasanas and, and asanas and things. We are cultivating Vasanas to do such things. So sooner or later, we have to give up those Vasanas. So just like we, we, we try by holding on to self-attentiveness, we're not allowing ourselves to be swayed by any vasanas. So we're not here to fight with our vasanas. We can overcome our vasanas only by holding on to self-attentiveness. In other words, by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. We, uh, we avoid being swayed by the vasanas by holding on to ourselves. So if uh, past practices are creating confusion and everything, let it be. Just try more and more to turn within. And just like other vasanas, those vasanas will also drop off sooner or later. The next question. By practicing self-attentiveness, I think a stage is reached where there is no longer much transaction by the senses. Objects present themselves, but the tendency to react to them is much less. My question is, eventually, are there no objects to be experienced at all? as there are no more vasanas or objects are experienced or are objects experienced without distinction as oneself? So long as there is ego, there will be vishaya vasanas. And so long as there are vishaya vasanas, there will be vishayas. By going deeper and deeper in this path, it's not but, um, but uh the objects will disappear, the world will disappear. So long as we're ego is there, the world is, there'll still be a world, there'll still be uh, Vishaya Vasanas. They get, the Vishaya Vasanas get weaker and weaker. They lose their strength. And so though the world still, still appears, we, we, 
we become we are less and less concerned about it. We have less and less inclination to go out and and uh, concern ourselves with the world. The world and the vasanas will disappear entirely only when their root disappears. Their root is ego. So all these things will continue until ego is eradicated. But vasanas will get weaker, but they will still remain. We, we can there's no such thing as an ego without vasanas. Vasanas, it's the very nature of ego to have vasanas. So the vasanas may get weaker, but they will remain until their root is destroyed. Their root is ego. When ego is destroyed, the vasanas are all destroyed and everything else is destroyed because everything else appears only in the view of ego. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludhanaptu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what it is, is giving up everything. That is, by investigating ourselves, we bring about the subsidence and dissolution of ego. When ego subsides and dissolves, everything else subsides and dissolves along with it. So eventually, there, there will be no objects. There will only be the pure being. Because so long as there's objects, there's a knower of the object. The knower of the objects is ego. So it's only in the view of ego that this world, all phenomena, appear only in the view of ego. So, so long as there are phenomena, there's also an ego who's knowing those phenomena. And so long as there's ego, there's also vasana. So we, these three all go together. That is, ego is the knower, but vasanas are the inclinations to know things other than itself. And those vasanas, those inclinations to know other things, the vishayas, are what appear as the vishayas. So until ego is eradicated, we cannot be free of these things. We cannot be free of the body. We cannot be free of the world. We cannot be free of vasanas. Okay, one day this body will die. But then another. this is just the ending of one dream. Another dream will start. It will continue until the root is eradicated. The root is ego. I hope that's an adequately clear answer to that question. The next question is, how to develop love for Arunachala? Praying to Arunachala for his love is not helping. What is Arunachala? Arunachala is not... Arunachala does appear in the outward form of a hill, but Arunachala is not just that outward form. He is the gem of light, but he's shining above, below, and everywhere. He is our own real nature, our own Swarupa. What we actually are is Arunachala. He's that which is shiny in our heart as I am. So whether we know it or not, we all love Arunachala because we, yeah, Arunachala is ourself and we all love ourselves. The trouble is we take ourselves to be something other than what we actually are. So now we love this person, but we seem to be as if it were ourselves. Um, how to cultivate that love? By trying to go within more and more. As we go within more and more, the, the love will automatically grow. The love to turn with the love to uh, to be as we actually are will will increase, and the the interest and liking to go outwards will decrease. 
So this practice is the most important thing. Prayer it can also help, but but prayer without practice is is not sincere prayer. What are we praying for? We're praying for the annihilation of ego. So if we are sincere in our prayer, we should be trying to prevent the ego from rising, trying to subside back within by holding on to self-attentiveness. So the truly sincere prayer will be accompanied by self-attentiveness. It will be a support to self-attentiveness. We won't take prayer as some sort of substitute for self-attentiveness. There is no substitute for self-attentiveness. Prayer, like everything else, it, it can be a, a very powerful support but it's no nothing is a substitute for self-attentiveness. The next question is from Jose. Jose, would you like to ask the question? Uh, namaskaram. Hi, Michael. Hi. Uh, I have a short question. It's uh, uh, a couple of nights ago. I had a dream in which I had a conflict with one one of my neighbors, and uh, in waking, I'm I'm in good terms with her, but. Uh, in this dream, she had she said something really offensive to me, like very rude words, and then I got angry. And well, yes, uh, uh, yesterday when I woke up, I was uh, remembering the dream, and I was uh, thinking who who got angry or investigating who was the one who got angry, and thinking about it. So I cannot I cannot blame it on any of the five sheets. Uh, because uh, they are jada, right? So yes, uh, but they are jada. But the the subtlest of the five sheaths is the anandamaya kosha, which consists of vasanas. The vasanas are jada, but they are your vasanas. They're your inclinations. So whatever we experience, it is it is because of our vasanas that we experience that. So if you if if you dream that you are angry with your neighbor, those those vasanas that gave rise to that situation and made you respond in that situation are there in you. Yeah, 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 is this true? But uh, they're not the the primary cause of the or the, the primary one, cause, of course, one. is ego. It's but ego, exactly. but but the 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 vasanas are not ego, but it's the very nature of ego to have vasanas. So all the problems we face are because of, as ego, we have these vasanas. And but if, if because my attention was outwards, going outwards at that moment, and your attention I, goes outwards under the sway of what? Yes, under the sway of your vasanas. Mm -hmm. And because I felt uh, this body felt hurt by those words. Yes, yes, yes. exactly, yeah, exactly. It, 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 that's why it, the the vasana. Yeah. Rose, yes. yes, in, in my mind, right? Yes, yes. And, and I decided, I just, I mean, I wanted to get angry because I identify with this body, I want to defend Exactly, it exactly. Against, except, uh, except because it was a dream, you thought it was this <laughs> body, but it was actually some other body. Yeah, some other body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so it's, uh, even though we are attending, our primary focus is uh Ego. I mean, uh, we have to uh, to to attend to ourselves. That's our, our practice. Yes. Yeah, to, uh, 
by this by this practice we are weakening the vasanas yes 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 but, we we are not too attentive of vasanas we are to attend right. to whose vasanas are they if we attend to ourselves then we are not allowing ourselves to be swayed by the vasanas because the vasanas are taking our attention away from ourselves towards other things so if we hold on to ourselves we are thereby not allowing ourselves to be swayed by the vasanas so the vasanas lose their strength So it's not a matter of fighting the vasanas. It is, we are holding on to ourselves and thereby refraining from being swayed by the vasanas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. True. Yeah, that's clear. So thank you very much, Michael. Right, right. The last question. How can we best practice Bhagwan's teachings when we have to deal with illness and our own death? the illness and the death are for what that for the body all the more reason to practice bhagavan's teachings that is death is in inevitable for all of us it may seem now but it's some far away in the future we don't have to worry about it now now i'm healthy and no no problem i'm going to death can come at any time we, if we if we are wise we will always remember our mortality we've always well is the mortality of this body but we take ourselves to be uh so this and if we are sick that should motivate us so long as we rise as ego we take ourselves to be a body so long as we take ourselves to be a body this body is liable to accidents it is liable to disease it's liable to old age it's liable to death so many things so all these things should motivate us now let us we we don't know how much longer we've got in this body we may have a heart attack and die the next moment or we may have another 20 30 40 50 60 years we don't know it depends on our age some of us when we reach older age then the, the chance of living longer gets less and less and less but anyway we know certainly whether it's whether we live for 100 years or 80 years or 9 or, or 70 years or 40 years whatever it is sooner or later this body is going to die so the thinking about these things should encourage us to make use of the time we have that is use this time to attend to ourselves however sick we may be um we can still attend to ourselves because the sickness is affecting the body we feel i am sick i am in pain i am this and that because of our identification with the body but who is that i who feels i am in pain i am i am suffering i am sick i am whatever i think that was the last question there was one other question i saw earlier um i think it was it must be one of the questions addressed to everyone someone asked where do thoughts come from I thought that was an answer to um, oh, another right. question about oh, self investigation. Okay. Just... Anyway, I can answer it in case in, whether it was a question intended as a question or not. It's a question people often ask, where do thoughts come from? Thoughts come from the thinker. But thinker is ego. And ego is the first thought. So where does ego come from? it comes from ourselves from our real nature from what we actually are so the first thought to rise is ego as soon as ego rises ego thinks so many other thoughts so all thoughts originate from ego 
sometimes people say, oh, no, no, it, thoughts just come of their own accord. We, we've got no control over what thoughts come. It may seem so, but it is not actually so. The thoughts are nothing but the sprouting of our vishayabhasanas. So if we think a certain thought, it is because we have an inclination to think that thought. But thoughts don't, don't just come randomly. Whatever thoughts arise in our mind, it is the sprouting of our own inclinations. So if we have an inclination to think of a certain thing, we will think of that thing. So all the thoughts come only from ego, which is the first thought. And ego comes only from what we actually are. So if we investigate ego, ego will subside and return to the place from which it came, which is our own real nature, and it will merge there, and we will then remain as we actually are, without any thoughts. Other thoughts can rise only after ego has risen. So if ego investigates itself and thereby subsides, to the extent that ego subsides, other thoughts will subside along with it. There is a last question which has come through, and I think this really does need to be the last question, right. which is, when spending significant time with Sadhu Om, did your mind become more silent when in the presence of someone who has dissolved their ego? This is directed to you, Michael. <clears throat> our aim in this path is not just to have a silent mind. Our aim is to know ourselves. By being in the presence of Sadhu Om, being in his company, talking about Bhagavan's teachings all day long and everything, the love to go within and to try to find out who am I increased more and more and more. Um, as a result of that, I would say, I can, I mean, of course, I don't know how I would be if I hadn't followed this path, but as a result of following this path, I would say generally my mind is much more peaceful now than it would have been if I'd been more worldly minded, if I had lots of worries about the world, about um, about uh, money and family and all these things, I'm not saying these worries are not there. They are there, but they matter less. So gen if we are following Bhagavan's path correctly, we will generally be, our life as a whole will be more peaceful. It doesn't mean that there'll be any less problems, but the problems will be less problematic. They'll be, they, they will, we will be less concerned about the problem because it's obvious they, nobody has ever lived a life without problems. The very nature, the body is itself a problem. So, so long as we take a body to be ourselves, we have to face so many problems. None of us are free of problems. But our attitude to, if we are genuinely following Bhagavan's path, our attitude to the problems is different. We are, we are not so concerned. Okay, problems come and problems go. The, Problems which now seem insurmountable, after some years we'll have forgotten about them. Problems which a few years ago seemed to us to be such big problems, they, like all other problems, they went their own way. We've now forgotten about them. So problems come and problems go. So our attitude to these things is less. So though we have to face whatever problems we're destined to face, we all have to face them, but we are less perturbed by them. So the the, the peace that we gain by following this path is not just five minutes of my mind is in a quiet state. That is not the real peace. It is the enduring peace, the, 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 
the general calmness of mind, the general... Um, Okay, we, of course, we're not always calm. Sometimes we get perturbed. None of us are, are perfect. We all get perturbed sometimes by the problem. But as a general rule, the deeper we go in this path, the less perturbed we will be by the problems of life. So, yes, I would say, but as a result of living, uh, uh, being with Sadhuam for eight and a half years and um, relentlessly questioning him about Bhagavan's teachings and doing all these translations with him and spending time in his company, I would say my life is far more peaceful, far more calm than it would have been otherwise. But of course, ultimately, it's not even Sadhuam. All this is by Bhagavan's grace. So it's Bhagavan who, who comes to us in the form of his teachings, comes to us in the form of his devotees, and uh, uh, and encourages us from outside to go within, and from within he's pulling us within. And to the extent to which we go within, to the extent to which we yield to the inward pull, and yield to the outward push, to that extent we will be calm and peaceful and unperturbed by the world. Not completely, but to the extent to which we are, are going within, to that extent we will be unaffected by all these things.